Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dan Pickles and I'm the host of the Sendcast. I'm also the Managing Director of B-Squared, a company who supports schools to show small steps of progress. Each week on the podcast, we're talking about a topic within the world of special educational needs, something to help us learn and support children with special needs and disability. You could be a parent or relative, a teacher, teaching assistant, Senko, senior leader, advisor, or someone else who works with children with SEM. There is so much to do and so much to learn. The Sencast is here to help you broaden your knowledge. In this episode, our guest, Natalie Packer, has joined me to discuss developing a whole school approach to SEND. For schools to really make a difference around SEND, it needs to be led from the top. One of the big challenges is getting them to listen. Before we get started, do you know what we do at B-Squared? Have you even heard of B-Squared? B-Squared was started around 25 years ago by my mum. She always struggled to show progress for people with special needs, so she created something that would keep her going until someone else made something better. 25 years later, she is still waiting. One of the ways we have supported schools has been by launching the virtual SEND conference in 2019. It is a way to access CPD around SEND that is more affordable and easier to access. It is a conference that you access over the internet, but it is also a series of videos that you can watch whenever you want, helping you to support pupils with SEND. For more information, visit www.virtualsendconference.com. And at the end of the episode, I'll be giving you a discount code so you can save some money when you purchase access. If you are a parent, we've also launched Parent Talks so you can access support and advice in the same way. Now on with the podcast. In this week's podcast, we're talking about developing a whole school approach to SEND. Our guest is Natalie Packer, an independent education consultant specializing in special education needs and disability and school improvement. Natalie develops and delivers a wide range of training and support to schools, multi-academy trusts and other organizations. She is a member of Nason's 0-11 advisory group and also supports the whole school SEND review process. On top of this, and being a governor and a trustee, Natalie has found time to write the books, The Perfect Senko and The Teacher's Guide to SEN. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Hi, thank you, Dale. Thanks for having me. For a school to become more inclusive, to become more communication friendly and make various changes to support special education needs and disability, it needs to come from the top. It needs to come from the senior leaders and governors. I often talk to schools where it's only the Senko and the TAs who are waving the flag supporting SEND. They're often working in a different direction to the rest of the school who are still focused on results pleasing the local authority of and governors. Ideally, a senior leader or governor could be listening to his podcast and will make some changes, but often it'll be the Senko or a teacher trying to make the changes and get senior leaders on board. So why is a whole school approach to SEND so important? I think as, as you've just um, alluded to, Dale, it's if we're going to really, really make a difference to outcomes for, for pupils with SEND in our schools, then that organisation and provision of SEND has really got to be led from the top. I don't think it matters how good you might be as an individual SENCO or how good your SEND team are. If you've not got that buy-in and that commitment from governors, from head teachers, from other senior leaders, then you're only really going to get so far in terms of the, you know, the impact that that you can have. So that whole school approach is is about every leader being on board. And I think that links to something that's that's really key within the SEND code of practice. Within the SEND code of practice, we talk about the idea of every teacher, a teacher of SEND, because you know, code of practice makes it really clear. 
that teachers are responsible for and accountable for the progress of, of every pupil in their class. That includes pupils with special educational needs and disabilities. But I don't think that you can really get to that position or expect to get to that position in your school where every teacher is seen as a teacher of SEND if we haven't got that situation where every leader is a leader of SEND first. So that's really where the whole school approach starts because it is about all, you know, all, all leaders get getting involved in that. And there's a, a colleague of mine, Margaret Mulholland, who's the SEND specialist for ASCOL, talks about this idea of SEND being part of the DNA of a school. And I really like that because it, it for me, it, it signifies that we all need to make sure that, that SEN is, is very much part of the fabric of what's happening in terms of the whole school so that it's not seen as a, as a bit of a bolt-on, really. I, I've found in some schools I go to is I might go there and I just talk to Senko. And I don't, they're looking at our software, looking at sporting, assessment around special needs. And I talk to the same car. I go to another school and I'm actually in front of every teacher. So it's not just what Senko is actually the, the leaders have got every teacher involved because they know all the teachers are going to be using this because they've got a range of special needs in their school. Therefore, every teacher needs to know about this, think about this and be aware of it. And that's me. That's a, that's a nice indicator to see that they are, as you said, that DNA is running through the school. Yeah. And, and I think that it's actually about the whole school community. So that starts with governors, it starts with governors and the head teacher who have got if, if you like that overall responsibility for setting the ethos and the culture of, you know, the approach to send first of all, and also having that, if you like that joint vision around what send will look like and sharing that vision again with everybody in the community, uh, the school community. So it's about senior leaders. It's about the middle leaders. It's about all the teachers, the teaching assistant, all of the staff in the school, but then crucially parents and pupils as well. Yeah, I think it's important to include all those stakeholders. Um, and I think some of the stuff I've on the podcast I've done previously when we talk about communication and language is actually it even includes those dinner ladies. Absolutely. People out in the playgrounds, so whether they're in a non-formal setting, out in the playground, the uh, members of staff out there are still on the same ethos, still on the same page as the rest of the school. It's not like teachers and everyone else. And that's, again, school leadership, that whole school is everybody in that school. It is. And it's about having a consistent approach and everybody understanding that approach. And, and when I'm talking about consistency, I don't necessarily mean having the same approach for every child, um, but being being flexible. And part of that, knowing how to respond to an individual pupil comes from knowing that pupil really well. And, and I think for me, a big part of of having a whole school approach and developing that whole school approach is having a really clear approach to identification of, of SEN and also making sure that all staff really know the needs of, you know, of individual pupils really well. Yeah. And I think that can be quite, I want to say quite easy. It's easier in a primary school where less pupils, less staff, and generally you've got a teacher will be working with that child for a year. But I think in secondary schools, when there's a lot more pupils and a lot more staff, that is a big challenge. And I think it takes stronger, more determined leaders to do that and I think in a secondary setting I, I agree I think I think it does again it's more difficult to get that consistency yeah. I think you know one of the things that leaders can do is, is is really to think about how they're 
how they're structuring things like support and CPD for different members of staff. Uh, so, for example, where you might have a SENCO, leader of SEND, who is working with particular subject departments, for example, to support that. And that also links as well with what SEND leaders should be doing in terms of supporting the approach to the curriculum. Because obviously, especially now with the, with the current inspection framework that we have, there's so much of that focus on the curriculum. And developing an inclusive curriculum is a really big part of that. It, traditionally, a lot of SENCOs haven't necessarily worked alongside subject leaders to really develop that approach to the curriculum. And I think this is a really good opportunity to do that and, and really helps with that, again, with that whole school approach. I'm just making some notes on something to come back to later around curriculum and also interventions, but I'll come back to rather than tangenting off right now, we will come back to that. But it is that leadership, the CPD, and it's really important to get the buy-in from staff, making sure all staff have training around SEND, and it might be looking for specific needs for different specific pupils and maybe doing more focused training on those areas so that teachers feel more empowered earlier rather than getting a pupil struggling to support that child and having difficulties and then trying to make it up is getting that support in earlier so the teacher's starting on the right foot. I think that's a big thing, I think, for schools that really could make a big difference. Yes, I, I think that I would just almost go a step back, back further and think about how we, how we share the overall vision around SEND, first of all, with, te with teachers and other staff and how we make that clear. So I talked before about the, you know, this idea of an important part of the whole school approach is, is about having that shared vision. So, you know, it's, it's a, as again, it's about all those stakeholders kind of sitting down together and saying, well, you know, what do we want SEND provision to look like in our school in a year's time or three years time or five years time? And what do we want outcomes to look like for children and young people with SEND in our school in the future? And that's, you know, once that vision is established, sharing that with all staff and actually then having that conversation with staff around how to then put that into practice in the classroom so for example you know if you are if you are a math teacher within a secondary school what does what does an inclusive lesson look like for you and what are some of the principles what are some of the teaching practices that are really important for you to put in place in your lesson yeah so it's, it's that getting that what is that vision and and sometimes you sit there and go, well, that's going to be really complicated. It's really hard. What would a, a, a vision focusing on special needs look like? And it's not. It's maybe just a few word changes. It's actually, if, you're, if your vision already says all pupils, it's actually going, that means all. That means everyone, S-E-N, everyone. It doesn't mean all of those who are going to be achieving the grades. It means all. It does. <laughs> I, get, I think a lot of government documents, when they will use men all, there's always that caveat of what that all means. It doesn't actually mean all. It means for all of those children on, in line to take the tests or type thing. But no, if, you're, if your um, vision says all, if you're saying we want to support all our, it's sometimes you don't even need to change the vision, but you do need to make sure all your staff think about what that means for all children and even for those leaders is modeling what that might look like for different pupils because that sometimes is you're told something you go, okay yeah i don't know what that would look like at this level so sometimes modeling that for staff 
given examples of some of the people saying, actually, for this child, this is what we will do. And for um, you know a lot of, a lot of teachers, obviously it's about it's about the day to day what's happening in in their classroom. And just going back to that idea of uh, of all pupils, I think this is where that that whole school focus on inclusive, high quality teaching comes in. I like to make reference to a metaphor that's used by a, another colleague of mine, Mark Rowland, who's a bit of a, a national expert on vulnerable pupils and disadvantage and, and he he uses the um the metaphor of the the canaries down the mine that idea of you know in the past where miners used to take a caged canary down the mines with them because if there were any hazardous gases around it would actually affect the canary before it got to the point of being dangerous for for humans and he kind of equates that to to some of our most vulnerable learners including those with disadvantage and i think we can quite often group some of our learners with send into that as well because it's it's almost that idea of well when things go wrong in education it's often those vulnerable learners that suffer the most and i think that's particularly the case with with high quality teaching so we know for example that high quality teaching is going to benefit all pupils, but actually really good teaching is particularly going to benefit some of our most vulnerable pupils, including those with SEND. So it's actually starting with that idea of, you know, high quality teaching. What does that look like? And then supporting teachers to develop, a, if you like, a repertoire of, of really key strategies that we know work for all pupils, but that can then be used flexibly to support particular needs of individual pupils i think that um sort of a theme which comes out of a lot of the podcasts we're recording is what works for sen works for all pupils so that canary analogy works really well because if you actually if they're struggling then it might not appear that some of the other students are struggling but they could be actually if these are finding it really hard really difficult really challenging it's hitting all their anxiety points and all this sort of stuff's causing issues then for your more able, your non-canary children, it will be having the same effect but smaller. And actually, if what if you change that, you reduce the big effect with the canaries, um, it's going to reduce the effect completely on the other pupils. So it, whatever you do, and it is it's that realization that what works for SEM works for all. But problem is schools are chasing the top. They're trying to bring the top, push the top, and they look at what works for the top, which often means skimming over basics. It means skipping that, skipping that, let's focus on that. And then actually a lot of the pupils don't have the underlying skills to then build upon to get to where they're supposed to be. And it's it's thinking the basics, the building blocks to build upon. It is. I also think it, it you know, it's, it's a little bit of a myth that a school can't be both a really high achieving school and also an inclusive school, because that's that's just not true at all. You know, my my experience is is that often very high achieving schools can actually be really inclusive as well because if if a school is is welcoming pupils with a variety of needs actually you know that's really increasing the expertise of staff generally and it's often really beneficial you know to the whole community anyway so i do i do think it's a bit of a myth that you know schools can only either be very inclusive or high achieving because that's not the case at all i think it probably is if it's not led from the top. Yes, which brings <laughs> us back to the to, to the whole school approach. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. if that if that lead if the leaders are chasing that, then it won't be inclusive. If the leaders are kind of be very inclusive, and you're removing all the issues for all pupils, then achievement for all pupils will follow. 
And I think that that can be a real challenge for, uh, for example, for a Senko who is, is working in a school where SEN is seen as a bit of a silo and uh, the rest of the senior leadership team are, are very much focused on chasing those academic results and worrying purely about you know, progress eight, for example, when we're talking about about secondary schools, and that can be really frustrating for someone who's trying to lead send and who is trying to develop a relevant, appropriate curriculum and learning pathways for students. You know, that might not necessarily align with what other other leaders want. So, I think for senior leaders, head teachers, and the sort of the deputy heads, there's lots to think about. But even when you're talking about subject leaders, like an English leader or a maths lead, is they are responsible for English for all pupils. Yeah, it's not I'm responsible for English for those walking working towards their GCSEs. No, you are responsible for English for all pupils. And it's, it's making sure people are realising that. So if pupils are struggling with English, that's not the Senko's responsibility. That is the head of English's responsibility and the same with maths. And I think a lot of schools sometimes think, okay, that's special needs people, that's the Senko's role. It's not, it's the English leader's role. And, and again, that's about the, the messages and partly about the, the accountability systems that leaders are, are, are putting in place. So that, for example, the head of English in a, in a secondary school is as made accountable, for example, for the progress of all of the students, including those with SEND. And part of that is in terms of supporting the the role of the subject leader that's something that the senko can can do um so senko might be working alongside subject leaders to you know look at look at things like developing an adapted curriculum looking at how the curriculum progression what that looks like across the subject it might be about supporting the subject leaders to be working with their teachers to remove barriers to learning it might be about the the senko and the subject leader working together to analyze the data to pick up on any on particular patterns or trends identify where groups of children or individual children perhaps are not making the sort of progress that they would like and then identifying additional support or interventions to put in place within that subject area. Yes, there's a lot to do. And I think I go to conferences and whenever you go to a big conference, you always get a list of who all the delegates are, where they're from and their role. And generally, you rarely see a head of English or a head of maths. You're seeing the inclusion leader, the Senko, and all of this. And I think I think people think of SEN, Senko. They don't sit there and go, I'm the head of English. I need to make sure I'm... So it's a big change, and that's got to come from the, as you said, the top. So in a school, has the head teacher been on any specific training for SEN? That's a very, very good question. Um, I'm just, I, I want to pick up on that in a minute. I just want to come back to what you were saying about about subject leaders. I've recently been doing some work actually across one trust um, and also similarly across um, a local authority where we've been been looking at, at, at curriculum development actually. And so within the, the, the particular trust that I'm working with, what we've got at the moment is a, is a working party where the SENCOs of the schools, and this is a, a trust with both primary and secondary schools, the SENCOs of the trusts are going to come together with identified subject leaders and do some a specific training around the development of, of an inclusive approach to their curriculum subject. So what we've done is to identify 
a number of questions that we want subject leaders to really think about when they're developing their, their curriculum. And that's becoming part of their subject leaders handbook. And the idea is that the Senko and subject leader will then work together to really to be able to answer those questions. That's important. And one of the things in the recent various podcasts I've recorded around sort of communication and language is often you may have a child in year six working at year one. And you might look at what the year one outcomes are. One of the things I think schools don't always do is then sort of go, what is the environment in year one? What is all that support in year one that this child at year six who's working at year one should actually be able to access? For your children in year one to thrive, you develop that classroom to really support their learning. You've done the scaffolding and all this lot is in that year one classroom, the whole makeup. Then you go to year six, it's a very different environment. And actually to help that child thrive at that level, they need that support. You don't have to do it in the same way. You can make it more individualized. But actually, it's not just looking at those outcomes. It's looking at what support are the children in year one getting. And then looking at your year six child working year one and going, and they're getting none of that. But yet we're expecting to see achieve the same skills. I think there's a really important message there about how within schools we can take a lot of the really excellent practice that happens naturally in a year one class and actually also within early years practice as well yeah. and how we can take some of the principles of, of that that practice because it, it tends to be early years practice in particular tends to be very inclusive the whole you know approach to it is very inclusive and I think there's a real you know there's some learning that that, that we can take in terms of looking at some of that great great natural practice that's part of an early years classroom and taking it not just up into year six but actually into key stage three and beyond as, as well as you say it might look it might look slightly different but in terms of the principles you know we can really really build on some of those principles yeah because there's a lot of um, language literacy link that sort of stuff there's a lot of conversations going and a podcast on with verbal reasoning and all of that stuff if you want to do comprehension let's start with verbal reasoning if you want to do phonics let's start with phonology and it all comes back and then you sit there and go it's not always happening in a year six classroom it's often a quiet place and children are working actually that child working they need the conversation they need to talk to help them maybe understand a concept and then once they've understood it and you can use that questioning to check their understanding, then they can start with the work. One of the, one of the big things for me, actually, I, I, I find is, is when children go, go into year, year seven, if they're still at a level of, of, of requiring support with developing basic reading skills, most secondary teachers have not been taught how to teach reading. And that's, that's understandable because you know they're, they're they're taught how to generally how to teach their subject and the majority of children they would expect already know how to read when they get into year seven but of course we know that, that there are actually increasing number of children who are not necessarily at that point when they start year seven but then it, it's difficult for secondary teachers to actually teach a child how to read because they haven't necessarily had the training in how to do that yeah so it's all yeah the expectation is and i think the often secretaries refer to as a teacher subject not the children and it is they're thinking of the subject and not and, and it's quite easy to be passionate and thrilled in that subject but actually sitting there going okay what how do these children need to learn this subject what is their level and thinking about that um and then sometimes it is unfairly given that phrase but sometimes uh based it's, it's across the school so it's got to think about again senior leaders 
rather than just starting year seven on this, actually you need to start thinking about this. But again, there's a lot of communication needs to happen. So all the teachers need to be aware of different people's needs and be accepting. And there's a whole, um, my family, uh, my nephews had various negative experience in secondary. And a lot of it comes down to not having a whole school approach to SEND. SEN is a bolt-on. It's not really thought about. It's only thought about when things go wrong. It just, it wasn't a good environment in that school. And there's nothing any teacher can do unless the leaders are on board, I think, in secondaries, because there's so many staff that even one person trying to make a difference won't make a huge difference because you're not seeing the pupils that often. You need to get senior leaders at secondary level. They have to be involved. And one interesting um, thing, going back to you said about my um, senior leaders on going to training is I did look up recently the number of pupils with SEN. I think it's around 14% at the moment. 14.9%, yep. 14.9. So that's going to be a lot of pupils in every class around the country. And yet senior leaders often aren't going on any SEN training, yet it's affecting 15% of their school. Yeah, and for me, this is one of my really big things at the moment about um, ensuring that 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 head teachers and, and other senior leaders have got a really good understanding of SEND. I have an idea that I think that anybody who wants to become a head teacher should actually be a SENCO for at least a term beforehand so that they really understand what, what the role entails because, unfortunately, some of some of them don't. If we look at the, the workload, the SENCO workload survey that was carried out by Bath Spa University, Nason and, and the NEU, that was a survey that was done of around about 2,000 SENCOs. started back in 2018 and, and then the authors did um, a follow-up last year. One of the questions that was asked in that survey of the SENCOs that were interviewed was, do you feel that other senior leaders in your school really understand the role of the SENCO. Less than half said yes. So I think it was something like 46%. And when that was broken into primary and secondary, in secondary, it was only, I think it was something around like 26%. 26. Of, yeah, of secondary senkos that said yes yeah our, our leaders our head teacher actually really understands sen and, and that that for me is is a big concern so i think it the, you know this is about well first of all head teachers knowing the key parts of the code of practice specifically chapter six because that's the bit about you know what we need to do in schools uh, chapter one is also important because that's all about the principles as well but you know there's, there's some question that I, I'll often ask of Senko's um, do you think your head teacher has read chapter six of the code of practice I think it's quite an interesting question to uh, to ask not just the head but actually you know the other senior leaders as, as well so for me that that training of head teachers and, and other senior leaders is is really important and I think for that to really happen, you then got to take that step up to governors and trustees. Because in reality, they are the vision setters. They are the ethos. They are the people who hold the head to account. So they can really make a difference in a school in that direction. But they've got a lot to learn as well. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot to understand. There's a lot to think about. And you, often you have the SEN governor. But I've, I've been to schools where I've done a meeting with the staff with the chair of governors there or the SEN governor there. I've been to other schools where the SEN governor is a token place. They don't actually do anything. 
it's just someone took that role, no idea what to do, nothing actually happens. And again, that shows that in that school, overall, there's a complete misunderstanding around SEN. I mean, I've met the Senko in that school, and that wasn't great either. So that whole school needs to change. And that's a big ask, is how do you change when the Senko is not effective, the senior leaders aren't? It's, there's a lot of work to do. So how can governors start to think about SEND? How do they know, are we doing this right as a school? Well, I think just going, initially, just going back to your point about governor knowledge, I think one of the things to consider is, is training and support for, for governors. And that starts, that starts right at the in, an induction, part of the induction process for, uh, for governors. And I, I would also, we're talking about governors, I'd also include trustees here as well when we're talking about uh, multi-academy trust. So, for example, the National Governors Association, they've got lots of, of online training for, for new governors and, and trustees. And one of the modules within their training is specifically around send. So I would recommend for a you know for governors and trustees if as a board you're accessing the NGA resources that that you have a look at that. So that I suppose that's a that's a starting point. The second thing that I'd mention is how how Senkos and leaders can support governors to develop that knowledge and understanding, particularly if they're very new to the role and if they perhaps haven't had that experience of um, of send before. So that might include the involve the Senko meeting on a regular basis with the governor, the SEN governor, to update them, you know, on what on what's happening. But in a sense, part of that can, can be almost a little bit of, of training and support to enable the governor to then understand what their role and responsibility is. So if, for example, the Senko has done some monitoring, they've been looking at the quality of, of teaching they could perhaps feed back a summary of that monitoring to the governor and they might be saying, well, you know, some of the things that we were looking for when we were doing when we were doing the monitoring around the quality of, of teaching and learning, we were looking to see how well included children were within lessons. We were looking to see how effectively te- teaching assistants were deployed, just to be giving some prompts, if you like, to, to the governor for them to then think about some of the things that are really important. In, in terms of in terms of SEN. I think one of the things that Senkos and leaders can do to really support governors in order for them to, car- to carry out their duties is to provide the uh, like an annual report to governors around SEN. So, it, you know, if you look in the governor handbook, it specifies quite clearly what the actual roles and responsibilities of the governing body governing body is around SEN. So it's things like cooperating with, with the local offer. It's ensuring that the SEN information report has been reviewed and is published on the website. It's about the responsibility around admitting children with education, health and care plans when they're named on on the the schools named on the EHCP. They've got that responsibility, obviously, for ultimately for ensuring that a qualified SENCO is appointed to do the role. They've got a responsibility to evaluate how effectively the SEND budget is is being used. So if all of these things are identified on the governor's report and and the SENCO is then completing that report, sharing that with the governor, and then the governor can take that back to a you know whole governing body meeting and, and sh- share that report and i think it's important as well to say that although many schools will have an identified governor that has that responsibility for send they are there as that representative it's actually the whole of the governing body's responsibility to ensure that children and young people with with send are having their meet, needs met w- within the school part of that of course as well is is ensuring that the school is meeting their requirements in terms of the equality act 
Yeah. So um, on that SEN information, SEN report is if you go on the DFE website and it says required documents for your website, it says SEN information and SEN report. And some schools don't realize they're two separate documents. So SEN information is your general information and SEN report is almost like your people premium report this year we have done. Or is it that sort of report? Just to be really clear for everyone. Okay, right. So when I was talking about the re- the report to governors, yep. that yeah, that is very much separate to the SEN information report. I'll I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. The, the, so the report to governors would be an annual report usually that the Senko would would produce, maybe in consultation with the head as well, hopefully. And that goes specifically to the governing body on an annual basis in order effectively to report back to the governing body on the elements that are that are part of their statutory duty. So for example, the equality, you know, whether the school's meeting the requirements of the Equality Act and admissions and, and so on. So that's what that's what I'm referring to when I talk about the governor's report. The SEN information report is completely separate because that is a report which is actually essentially for parents. So the predominant audience for SEN information report is, is, is a parent. And the idea of that is that it gives an overview of the provision that the school has put in place for pupils with SEND over the last 12 months. So it it is kind of a retrospective report, really. But the idea of is that that will be published, that has to be published on the school's website. So it's it's made public and it is there for parents to be able to see what the provision, generally what, what the provision looks like. You know, the, I think the SEN information report, it, it's actually a really important document. And yes, we've, we've, we were just talking about governors, but actually in terms of the whole school approach to SEND, in a sense, your SEN information report is partly showing how you put that whole school approach in practice in your school. We've talked about the governor's report. We've just mentioned about the SEN report. The other thing, of course, is the SEN policy. So the school should have an SEN policy. That's different to the SEN information report because the policy is is actually setting out the vision. It's setting out those long-term objectives. The SEN information report is showing how the policy has been implemented in practice over the last 12 months. So the the governors, in a sense, have got a responsibility to ensure that the policy is being enacted. Just going back to the SEN information report, because this is, I I think this is a really important thing to pick up when, you know, when we're talking about the whole school approach, because with that whole school approach, all of those stakeholders are really important. And that includes parents. With the SEN information report, because the, the audience predominantly is parents, it's really important that you're involving parents in the development and review of your SEN information report. It needs to be written in a, in a way that's accessible to parents. And of course, the best way to do that is to ask parents to get involved in developing and writing it in, in the first place. There's... um. Some really nice examples now of schools where they've really thought carefully about how to make their SEN information report accessible and really involved parents in that process. So, for example, there's um, a school in East Cheshire called Pikemere, Pikemere Primary School. And what they've done is actually to produce a video that goes alongside their SEN information report. And the, the video was developed by a committee of, 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 of stakeholders, including parents. And it shows children, parents, teachers, head, Senko, all talking 
about SEN provision in the school. And it's just a really nice, accessible way of presenting the SEN information report. I'm going to go for the complete opposite experience that six years as a governor at a school. The policy was copied from another school. The information report was never done. And there was never a report to governors around SEN. Oh dear. Okay. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know another school <laughs> in a similar situation. So I think some schools have a very long way to go. Some schools are there already and winning and doing great. Others are somewhere in between. So it sounds like as a governor, the first thing I should be looking for is in the last year, where is that SEN report to governors? And where is that information report on the website? And what is our SEN policy? And when was it last updated? Or in this is it actually ours or is it just a photocopy from another school with the name changed? Well, there are times that works well, but I think with SEN, you needed to make it your own. You, you do. And absolutely, you need to make the SEN information report your own. And you have to review that every 12 months as well. With your policy, the policies might be slightly different in that if you are, if as a school, you are part of a, a multi-academy trust, for example, you might have a trust-wide policy. And um, yeah. because the policy is setting out some of those key principles around SEN, actually, those principles should be the same ac ac across the trust. So it might be that you have, you know, it might be that your policy is the trust-wide policy. It could be slightly adapted to suit your school however your SEN information report is absolutely should be you know yours and just just going back to the experience that that, that you've had I, I do I spend quite a lot of time doing SEN reviews in schools and so one of the first things that I'll do when I'm preparing for a review of a school that I, that I don't know is obviously to have a look on their website have a look at their SEN information report and quite often it will tell me quite a lot before I even step into the school it will tell me quite a lot about the overall ethos because if I can see that the report has been really carefully developed and if it's obvious that it's been developed for and with parents, then that gives a really strong message about the, the overall ethos of inclusion in, in that school. Conversely, if I see an SEN information report, which I have on many occasions, that has literally been copied and pasted from another school. And, and in some cases, I've seen SEN information reports where I've, I've read halfway down the page and there's another school's name there because they've copied and pasted it and forgot to change the school name. Then again, that gives a little bit of a message about you know what the, the overall culture of, of of the school so it's important to get your SEN information report right the other thing of course not that we do it for this reason but Ofsted when they are doing an inspection as part of their you know their pre-inspection trawl will have a look on your website and they will yep. look at your SEN information report they might not go into lots of detail but if they go on the website and they can't find it for example because it's hidden under some tab somewhere and it's really difficult to find you know if if Ofsted can't find it the likelihood is that if a parent's going onto the website they probably won't be able to find it very easily either so you know it's as I say not that we do it for for Ofsted because we don't do anything for Ofsted we do it because it's the right thing for the children but but Ofsted but Ofsted will actually look at it. So there's the annual report to governors on SEM what else should be discussed at governor level? In it. What should, what is this stuff they really should be discussing every year or regularly at governor level around SEM? Uh, okay, so they uh, governors really need to be thinking about how the school is is using their best endeavours to meet pupils' needs. That's essentially what what they're looking at, and I'm using that terminology because that's obviously the terminology within the you know within the the code of practice. They need to be in, ensuring that the 
the school is inclusive in its philosophy and also in its strategic aims. Um, one of the things that we've not picked up on yet is the, the idea of strategic planning and how any strategic plans for SEN need to be very much linked to or part and parcel of the whole school strategic plans as well, again, so that it's not seen as a as a, a separate bolt-on. And I think it's, you know, it's useful for it's useful for the governing body to have a clear summary of what the what the key strengths are in terms of SEN in the school and also any particular areas for development and where they are then addressed within any kind of strategic plans. Governors also need to, as I mentioned before, ensure that the school's fulfilling its duties under the Equalities Act. So, for example, ensuring that the reasonable adjustments duty is in place. And again, that's a really important part of the whole school approach because every single member of staff in the school needs to be ensuring that reasonable adjustments are in place for children and young people with disabilities. Oh, I think another thing as well for, um, for governors, they also need to ensure that they are cooperating with the local area, the local authority, in terms of the local offer. So there's an explicit expectation that governing bodies will do that. That predominantly comes through the SEN information report because essentially the SEN information report is showing what your school's contribution to the to, to the local offer is. So one of the things I, I is I sit there and it's obviously pie in the sky stuff at the moment, but I still think for children with EHCPs, the four broad areas needs, their annual targets, that's a big thing for them. And there is no accountability around that. There's no a governing level, how are we doing with EHCP outcomes? How how are we do how are we doing with community? To me, that should be something which should be talked about at that sort of level. Obviously, I'm pie in the sky dreaming. Yeah, well, no, I think I, I think it's I think it's absolutely right, and I I I certainly know of schools where that happens. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> two, two things I'd, I'd pick up on there. So, so I think there's the whole challenge around, I suppose, what, what data, and I'm using data in the widest sense, what data schools present to governing bodies in order to give that overall picture of what progress and attainment for SEN, SEND looks like. I think the other thing is, is related to what you were just saying around the four broad areas of need and actually thinking about the cohort of children within the school as well so there are the, the two things to pick up on there so if I, I'll, I'll start with I'll start with the, thinking about the cohort of children because one of the things that governors need to know is that overview of well how many students do we currently have in our school that have SEN how many are at SEN support how many have an EHCP etc but then also to to look at that from the perspective of the four broad areas of need and this is something which isn't just useful for governors, but actually this is something which all senior leaders should be looking at. So we tend to refer to it as your, your strategic overview of SEND. So that's that's basically you're looking at your SEND profile, looking at the cohort of children that you've currently got in your school and identifying, first of all, what percentage of children you have overall and how that compares to national. So for example, we said before, currently 14.9% of children in the UK have have SEND. So within if you're in a mainstream school, how does that national figure compare with your school figure? Because actually if it's very, if your school figure is very different to that, there are no doubt, you know, numerous reasons why that might be the case, but it's important that as a school you understand that. So if it's significantly higher, you know, why is it higher? It might be that you have a particularly good reputation 
for meeting the needs of pupils with SEN and parents are choosing to send their child to your school. It might be that you're over identifying and that's, a, you know, that's something that, that, that then needs addressing. So that strategic overview enables you, as I say, first of all, to look at your overall cohort, but then to break that down into the four broad areas of need to be able to identify what percentage of children you have, you know, who have communication and interaction needs, who have cognition and learning, who have SEMH, who have physical and sensory. And that's that's really important to do because that then enables you as a, as a leadership team to be planning provision. So if you're identifying, for example, that the significant majority of your children fall under the category of communication and interaction, you know that that's where you need to put the majority of your resources. And again, that kind of information needs to be shared with governors because they need to be involved in ultimately making those decisions around whether the provision that's in place is the right provision and also whether it's value for money and are you targeting your resources really in in the right way just going back to the just going back to the data and looking at progress the progress data I think there are there are various ways that as a send leader you can if you like, present that data to to governors. Obviously, governors only really need this kind of top level data, but you know it's it's useful for for governors to to be able to see, for example, what progress children with SEN are making towards national national expectations, whether that be in terms of year one phonics, you know, end of key stage two, end of key stage four, and to and to see whether there are significant gaps in terms of progress and attainment for those with SEN and and those without SEN. Nationally, we know that there are are huge gaps in in that data. But again, it's about looking at your own school's data and saying, well, if if there are significant gaps, why is that the case? And what are we going to do about it? If you've got a lot of children who have cognitive needs, then actually the gaps in attainment are to some extent understandable because there will be children who, no matter what what you do, will never reach age-related expectations, whatever they look like. Yep. That's not going to be the case for every child with, with, with SEN. So for governors to be able to unpick some of that and ask those challenging questions where perhaps expectations might not be high enough or where progress isn't what we expected for this particular group of children is really important. But alongside that, and just going back to your initial point around looking at EHCP outcomes, again, that's a that's a really important part of the of the picture. I think for me, when we're looking at progress of pupils with SEN, there are almost three elements to it. So there's the there's the element of looking at how children are progressing in relation to age-related expectations. There's the element of looking at things like behavior attendance and exclusions. And again, it's useful for governors to have that overall picture. And if there's any over-representation, for example, of students with SEN who have been excluded or where there are behaviour incidents that have been logged. And then the third element of that progress should be around individual, sorry, progress towards individual targets on a child's plan, support plan, or on their EHCP. Now, as as a governor, you wouldn't necessarily need to have detail about individual students and the progress that they're making but actually to have you know even if it's something like an anonymized case study which shows for this student or this group of students this is the progress that they've made towards their long-term EHCP targets or their shorter term targets that have come out of that and thinking about you know the different ways that 
that that can be measured and, and again, how that can be shared on a, on, a, on a wider scale. It's important to remember when, when we say data, we don't necessarily mean a number or a graph. Data no. could be a photo. It could be a comment from a parent. Yeah. It could be, um, it's just so many things data is, but everyone goes for the graphs and the numbers, but it just could be maybe how teachers feel about the progress across the four broad areas. Because sometimes it's hard to say in a very quantifiable way, how the progress within communication interaction. Yeah. What you might do is actually say, well, actually he's done this. And you might say something a child's achieved this year. And for you, that's amazing. So it's not always about the numbers. It's sometimes how teachers feel. Yes. And other thing, which is one of my biggest bugbears at the moment, which I really hate with passion. I've come across a few schools recently still doing this, is when children are in year six working at year one level, but the data in the assessment system comes up as year six emerging. So if in your school, you're a governor, you're a senior leader, and you look at all your year six data and all your children are working at year six, and all your year five children are working at year five, and year four, year four, and year three, your data is wrong. It's misleading. It's not helping anyone. It's damaging your school because no one realizes, not that there's a big problem, but your children are working substantially below or significantly below, and the support is input there, and no one's asking the questions about that because you're almost hiding the data with, oh, they're year six merging. I hate it. I, just, I thought we got rid of that, but there are still quite a few schools still doing that, which I hate. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And it's not, you know, at the end of the day, what is that actually, what message is that giving to a child or to their parents in terms of the progress if they're just seen as every year they're emerging, emerging, emerging? And th there may be a place for that kind of top level data. However, I'm, I'm trying to be subtle here. <laughs> um, <laughs> however, it's about it is about unpicking that data and, and looking underneath it, and then saying, okay, so for these children who, if as a school we are still using that kind of system, what else have we got which genuinely shows the progress, the small smaller step progress of those of those pupils? You know, whether that's because we're using you know, we're using something like B squared and therefore we can see that that progress if we're using standardized assessments where we're looking at reading ages and we can see progress in that, whether we're, you know, looking at using something like a box or profile because we want to be able to identify the progress of, of a pupil's social skills. All of those things are, are, are really important. If you go to the B squared website under resources, under webinars, you'll see previous webinars and under there, I did a webinar back in November 2018 called What is Good Progress? And in there, I go through all the sort of things you've covered. What are you measuring? What is data? And I've got like one of the slides is a picture of a child in early years, colouring next to two teachers and I've asked is that good progress and for some, that child because there's lots of things around that and it's thinking about how you change how you think it's not about how much graph shows it's how people feel and then I've done another one about um, helping governors and uh, understand how to judge progress for people with SEN again moving away from the amount to actually talking to teachers and also I talk about what you should talk about in governors meetings which is Natalie's kind of said and then the recent one which I did a couple of weeks ago was the removal of P levels two years on what that's changed and that schools are still doing this horrible assessment system and they need to stop and actually just change I'm not going to be polite <laughs> It doesn't help anyone. If that, if, if you're trying to get any HCP, uh, if you're trying to get support and you're saying, where's this child working, year six emerging, initially it's like, well, he's doing all right then, isn't he? If he's in the same year as he 
actually what you meant was year one or year two or even yeah. below. No. So if you're not saying that, if you're not recording that, if you're not highlighting this issue, then you're probably not acting like this child is four or five years behind. As a school, you're not taking that responsibility, supporting that child correctly for that child. You're kind of glossing over and ignoring them. And I think, you know, it comes back down to what's the purpose of assessment? Well, actually, it's about celebrating the progress a child has made. It's about showing their, where they are in terms of the curriculum journey. And really importantly, it's about enabling teachers to be able to identify next steps for teaching and learning. And if, you know, if you've just got that emerging, emerging, emerging picture, that's not going to do any of those things. So earlier I mentioned a tangent I wanted to go into. I'm actually probably going to leave that and probably do a whole other podcast on that. It's around, you're looking confused, it's around this idea of curriculum. Uh, right, okay. Yes, and there's lots of people I've seen on Facebook groups going, we've been told off by someone because uh, we've got a secondary school because we've got a child who is missing French to get additional support within English and that child should have access to English and they're not sure how to deal with that, how to make the correct decision. So there's a whole load of that sort of stuff. And also I think with curriculum, to me, I think with special needs, you're thinking about an individual curriculum. And when you think of all that stuff in your timetable and second, all those subjects, it's like, cool. And when's the SEMH support coming? Where's the communication interaction support coming? Mm. So it's probably a whole podcast all around curriculum intent, supporting intervention, balancing, just to give people, I think, more confidence about, yes, this is, I for me, this child, this is the right decision. This is why I'm doing it. Okay. Yep. There's probably no hard and fast rule, is there, on that? No, there isn't. <laughs> there isn't. So I can't <laughs> just go, answer this question, and you'll give me a lovely quick answer. <laughs> there. It's probably a whole other podcast would be my guess. Okay, yeah, I think that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> cool. So we've gone through a lot of stuff, all about that whole school approach, and generally everything comes back to is that senior leaders, it's about being informed, it's about, S training around SEN for everyone. It's bringing that thought process up higher. Again, looking back to when I was a governor, we did have an instant reporting, but it was never actually broken down into SEN or non-SEM. So that's, that's a really good thing. And generally what you probably find is your SEN are probably causing a lot, of, not causing, very clear on that, are in the, this is where the instants are. Uh, and then you might actually be able to unpick that as a school and realize maybe reasonable adjustments. So you talk about reasonable adjustments earlier. It's it's supporting staff to understand what is reasonable adjustments. Yes. Um, and how far can you go? And are you putting your own thoughts into the process rather than seeing, will this work? Rather than saying it won't work, actually maybe try it and then really find out if it will work or not. There's a whole, the reasonable adjustment is a big topic. It is. There's a policy mentioned in the last year about zero tolerance behavior, silence and all that. Lot. They're just like, and I think I'm going to watch Twitter explode with the words reasonable adjustment. And there was nothing. I was like, I missed it. This is, this is, this is against everything I see. And this it was horrible. So yeah, reasonable adjustment is a big thing. But I think people think, how far can I go? So I think that is within your school, again, modeling what a reasonable adjustment looks like for different pupils. And rather saying, well, we have the children can't code for, they won't be able to actually try it. Sometimes the pupils are quite fun. They understand that their friend may have made his challenge. And if they support them, they'll probably be quite happy. They probably won't go, what about me? And I think a lot of children are much better than that these days i think we're we've, we've all adjusted we've all got inclusion is great because it everyone benefits from inclusion yes yeah absolutely yeah and you'll find that some of these children especially in primary have known this child for years and they can literally tell you how he needs supporting how their friend needs supporting without even saying they'll know oh if he had this this it'd be getting easier or this causes him so children will know 
children get used to their classmates and understand them and see what works. So, yeah, reasonable adjustment is a big thing that I think schools need to be clearer on and know more about. But, yeah, there is a lot. And I say a lot of it isn't happening at the moment. No, I, 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 well, some I think some, yeah, some schools are, are, are doing it really well. And, you know, there are some, some great examples of, of where schools are, you know, have got excellent practice in place. And again, it's those schools where, where it's been led from the top, where there is that whole school approach, where all leaders are on board. Yeah, that, that's, that's where it's working most effectively. Cool. So are there any resources people can go out and find to help them on this journey? Yes, there are. <laughs> so two two books in particular that I would recommend. So the first one is my book, The Perfect Senko. <laughs> so which is actually it's very much focusing on the Senko role, but it's it's focusing on the strategic role of, of, of the Senko because again, you know, for this for this whole school approach to work the Senko has to be in a position to be able to work strategically. Actually, one of the other things we haven't mentioned is that it is in terms of Senko's being part of SLT. I'll talk about that in another podcast a bit more, but I would just say in relation to today's topic, I think it does help enormously if the Senko is part of a senior leadership team because it means that they are in a, a much better position to be able to have that whole school influence. So Can I just, just add not just be given the role of senior leader, be included. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, genuinely, genuinely included. Not genuinely just included. Yeah. Not yeah. just told, yeah, you're on the senior leadership team and then never included. Uh, yes. <laughs> quite um uh, so yes yeah, so I, I say i would recommend my book perfect senko to yeah, have a look at to say the strategic role of, of the senko and development of that whole school approach the other book that i would highly recommend is a book by a friend and colleague of mine david bartram the book is called great expectations leading whole school send strategy and well as it says on the tin really it's very much about leading that 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 whole school approach so i would recommend those two books. The other thing that I think is also worth having a look at is some of the resources on the Send Gateway, which have been produced by Whole School Send. So Whole School Send are, are a consortium of national send organisations led by Nason, who have been, for the last couple of years, have been given funding by the DfE through the, the Workforce Reform Grant. And that funding has been used to develop a whole range of resources, guidance, publications for schools and settings around leading and implementing SEND. And there are a number of resources, for example, the, the SEND Review Guide which is a, is a framework for SEND self-evaluation. And it's a, a sort of a tool, really, that, that school leaders can use to use as a framework to discuss what's working well in their school and what their next steps for development might be. So in, again, in terms of this whole school approach and thinking about it from the strategic perspective, that can be a really useful tool and process to go through to identify what your whole school actions are moving forward in terms of SEND. And also there's the, uh, for use of information, if you haven't looked at the uh, Senko workload server, that's a really good read. Uh, we had Hannah Maloney, who was part of it on the first virtual SEND conference, who sort of took us through the findings. Sadly, they are exactly what you expected. In a lot of schools, it's not great, but there are some schools where it is great and that's phenomenal. We need to include that. I realized um, researching this podcast and other podcasts, Natalie told me that they've actually done a follow-up to that. Yes with some recommendations going into the 2020 code of practice into well into the the recommendations of of being given as part of the 
the current send DFE review that's happening at the moment. So, yeah, so, M- yeah. more information on that to be announced apparently quite soon. So uh, fingers crossed. So, yes, yeah, so there's it's, it's lots of information out there. Senkos generally don't need to find out more information. Generally, Senkos are doing a really good job. But sometimes it's having that information you can share with others to try and convince others. So that's why I said I always find yeah. you, you might believe something, but actually being able to have, pool, have a pool of information you can pull on to actually sit there and help uh, fight your cause and uh, make changes is always going to be invaluable. So before we wrap up the show, have you got anything else to say? Have we covered it all? I think that's it. I think we've covered quite a lot there, Dale. So uh, I've enjoyed it. As I, I could go on so many segues and keep this going for another couple of hours, but luckily we're covering some of it in another podcast and others in another, another podcast. So that's great. So big thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. So Natalie's given me a load of links to her books, the Great Expectations book, the Workload Survey, a Senko Induction Packs, SEND in a Nutshell Template, and the Whole School SEND Review that's all going to go on the show notes so you can find them on the website so www.thesendcast.com big thank you for listening to the show please let us know what you think please leave a review on itunes or if you access it through website leave a comment on the website or if you're on twitter use the hashtag sendcast so we can let you know what you think you can find us on all the social media channels so on twitter we are at the sendcast on facebook the sendcast instagram the sendcast and on linkedin just search for sendcast and you will find us if you want to get in touch let us know your thoughts suggest topics or anything else please send an email to hello at the sendcast.com and if you've enjoyed the sendcast and you want to look at training for your whole school in a really accessible way have a look at the virtual send conference this like the sendcast is run by us here at b squared and we've also recently set up a new parent talks event which is supporting parents but the whole idea is that virtual send conference is as i was saying in the podcast is lots of schools it's only the same code goes on training because sometimes the training is expensive it's limited there's so many other things with time and everything else so it's often only the send code the idea what we've done with the virtual send conference is we've created an event that you can access over the internet you can access it whenever you want and it's you access individual talks so you might not watch the whole thing but individual teachers can watch specific videos or you could do a whole staff training on a particular topic but it's a great way to get your training around at SEND to all staff so they can watch it at home, at school, wherever. So you can buy tickets for future events or past events. We run the conference twice a year, but the videos are always available. And the cost for schools conferences are £60. And that's for the entire school, not per person. And as a listener to the Sendcast, we're offering you a 10% discount just using the code SENDCAST10. No spaces. And you can find out more about the events for schools by going to www.virtualsendconference.com. If you're interested in parent talks, we're launching Series 1 at the end of June. Only cost £10 for the entire series of 12 talks to support parents and carers at different stages. So it's transitioning, disability living allowance, food, various topics it covers. And schools can also access these uh, talks to support their parents. And for more information on parent talks, you can go to www.virtualsendconference.com forward slash parents. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, We'll be back next week with another episode of The Sendcast. Goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Bye.